They told me for years there was no money in podcasting. Well, they were all wrong. This is an ambiguous podcast solutions original podcast. A podcast years in the making. Centered around You're listening to Talking with Tarasha. With your host and founder of Ambiguous Podcast Solutions, Will Tarashuk. Join Will and his guests as they talk about anything and everything under the sun. I say this all the time. Now, without further ado, let's do this. Yes, I know I have gray hair. All right, welcome everyone to the Talking with Tarashuk podcast. It is fresh on a Monday morning as of recording this, so that's always the first thing I like to do on a Monday morning to kick off a brand new week of August. Um, I am joined today by an executive performance coach by the name of Fred Blum. Fred is an executive performance coach who specializes in stress management for high-level C-suite executives. He also teaches the Freedom Course and is a former chiropractor. So a lot of fun things to get into there. Fred, my friend, welcome to the podcast. It's very happy to have you here. So how are you? Monday morning. Fresh Monday morning. Let's dive right in. It's a new week. All right. So with that being said, I gave you a nice little intro there. Just introduce yourself. Who are you? What brings you here today? And, you know, what's your story? Well, um, I appreciate your having me on your show, Will. Um, What about me? Um, I live here in Austin, Texas. I was, um, I guess we can get into this at some point. I was a holistic chiropractor for 25 years. Uh, I currently work as, uh, as you say, an executive performance coach, which means that I work with um, executives, business owners, people that I like to call um, high performers and overachievers, people that work really, really hard to uh, accomplish some degree of success in life, whatever people, however people define success, Mm. you know, so you may be a a mom who raised four kids and now you go, that's a success. But at a certain point they're, they're looking at their life and they're saying, now what, you know, like I, I got everything I thought I wanted and there still feels like there's something missing. And, and what, what they're looking at, the hole that they're looking to fill isn't going to be as easy to fill in the world by, by adding one more success or some new project or something like that. And so that's sort of where I come in is helping them to find what they're looking for more in here on the inside than in something in the world. Okay. Yeah, definitely stress is something that like, made me go, ooh. You know, that was my ooh. My one mm. my one caveat for this podcast is if you make me go, ooh, that's interesting, then I want to have you on. Um, okay. And that's that's what got me because I've, I've talked to a handful of life coaches on this podcast, all very interesting, all very different. Now, you do not technically use the term life coach. You use executive performance coach. What makes you different from all the other life coaches out there? Um, in what way it sets you apart? Because I, don't, I, don't, I think you're correct. I don't think you're a life coach. Right. And, and I don't in any way mean to disparage the term life coach. Of course. You know, in fact, when I first heard it 25 years ago, whenever that first came around, I thought, what a cool idea, you know, a coach for life. That made so much sense to me. Um, I just don't personally like being lumped in a category with, you know, tens of thousands of other individuals where you really don't have any idea how one is different from another. So to your point, um, I don't know this, you know, what makes me different from every other life coach. I think everyone's got their own style. Right. Um, I have a, a particular orientation that I do find unique that I don't, I haven't seen much of out there, which is um, giving people uh, direct experience of what I call their true self. The, 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 the person, the part of you that is beyond the identity, beyond your ego. And we can get into what all this stuff means whose very nature is already peace and clarity and freedom and happiness. In other words, for the people, again, the overachievers, the high performers who are seeking happiness in the world, I help them to see that there's really no true happiness to be found in the world. There's temporary happiness to be found in the world, but true happiness peace, freedom, clarity, et cetera, is something that we find it's, it's already built in. It's part of our factory settings, but we have been conditioned not to see that and to look outward for it. So that's sort of 
um, of, there are two main orientations I have. That's the first one that people have to learn to what I call who they really are in order to be able to really be happy in life. And that's hard, right? That's, that's very, very difficult. I remember it took me, it took me a little while to actually discover who I truly was. I probably didn't actually figure it out fully until, I don't know, 20, I was probably 20, 21 years old. And when I actually kind of just kind of- Which I would say is very young. Yeah, of course, it is very very young. Like I always, I have this thing. I always knew who I was, but it took me a while to accept who I was for who I am. You know what I mean? That that kind of thing. It's like, I I fought so hard to be someone I knew I couldn't be. So now it's just like, well, fuck it. (laughs) I am who Mm. I am. You can love it or leave it. Yeah. Yeah. And- and we can get into this. I, first of all, I think what you're saying is definitely in, in alignment with what I'm saying. Yeah. And we may, as we go on, get into more nuances about the way I'm describing it and the way you're describing it. Because, of course, these aren't like set definitions. We right. can all come at it a little differently. Right. Now, you're also a doctor. So what is what is your doctorate in? In chiropractic. Okay, so a doctor in chiropractic. Okay. That, yeah. that's, that's what I thought, but I always wanted, wanted to be sure. So let's 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 stick with life coaching or executive performance coach. Sure. So how did you how did you get into that? What makes you just kind of one day and go, you know what? This is my career path. This is what I'm going to do. Well, there's a couple of answers to that. Um, uh, in no particular order, one of them is that you know. At, so I did a very unique type of chiropractic, um, uh, a system called the uh, network spinal analysis, which is uh, you might call more of a transformational system than anything else. It wasn't really about back and neck pain. It was about um, resetting the nervous system, if you will, of, of helping the, the body mind to, to um, resolve deep, longstanding patterns of stress that, that get locked into the system that affect everything from your physical health to your emotional well-being, you know, to how you show up in the world. And, and it's really powerful work. And, and so on one level, what I noticed is I would be taking care of patients every day and they would leave my office happy, peaceful, flowing energy through their bodies. Mm-hmm. And then they'd go back into their lives and they'd do the same stupid shit. You know, mm-hmm. they would, um, you know, be, and I'm not, I don't, that's meant to be funny. I know it's not so easy always to make the changes in your life, but I mean, they'd go back into a job that they hated or, mm-hmm. or, you know, a relationship that wasn't working for them or they're still overeating and they're still doing whatever they're doing. And what I realized is like the, the, the network in, we call them entrainments, not adjustments, but they would open the door for people you know, to really have different life, et cetera. But it took something. It's still, they needed more help than that to actually step through the door. And what they needed was coaching, you know, in essence. And that's the chiropractic environment that I was set up in was not designed to give them that kind of coaching, you know, to really take a moment and dive into these patterns that they had. So when I was getting ready to move from New York to here to Texas, um, uh, through some shenanigans with the Texas state board that aren't really that important. They were going to make it more difficult than I had in- anticipated to get my license here. I could have gotten it, but it would have been a lot of work. And for me, those are always moments in life where you can pause and assess the path that you're on, you know? So for me, it was a moment to say, do I want to, I've done it for 25 years and I, do I want to continue on this path or is it time for a change? And I decided it was time for a change and coaching. Um, I hope it always stays this way is a non-regulated profession. Mm-hmm. So, um, there's nobody out there that can say, you know, when you get to be a coach, there are no qualifications. Um, so, you know, anybody can say I'm a coach and that's it. You're a coach. And I think that's a beautiful thing. And now it's up to you, excuse me, to, um, to prove yourself to at least your small handful of clients that you have something of value to offer. It's not because the state said I have something of value. You have to prove it to that person, you know, in real time. I like, I like that you said the word regulation. Um, and the fact that you think that it's unregulated is a good thing. And that's something I tend to go back and forth on with this general line of work because anytime I talk to a, talk to a life coach, I think it's important that they say, or an executive coach, that 
listen, this isn't, it's like, I, I'm, I need to prove my worth to you, right? It's, yeah. it's the, the, the fact that there is no regulation, I think does work in its favor because I think it, it kind of has a, a stigma of, not like a scam, but it's just like, it's not, not, not even that's not real. Anyone can do it. It's, yeah, anyone can do it. Anyone can do it. It's just like, do I work for you? Right, because like saying sometimes I think life coaching can be can be similar to therapy, but therapy you need to go a license, this, that, and the other. It's it's very different. But I do think regulation would actually do more harm than good because people who get stuff out of life coaching actually get stuff out of life coaching, and people who don't don't, and they don't need to. Well, a couple of things. First of all, personally, um, I think it would be a mistake for someone, a coach, a life coach, an executive coach, whatever, to to do therapy under the guise of life coaching. Correct. Okay? Yeah. So I'm not going to ask you, like, you know, to tell me all about your childhood and, you know, try and tie it to your current anxiety or anything like right, that. Right. That's not my thing. If somebody wants therapy, I think it's a good idea to go to a trained therapist. And, um you know, I understand the point of regulation because, you know, like in therapy, for example, someone is very vulnerable. The client is very vulnerable. And so the potential for a therapist to take advantage of them is is there. And, yeah. and so you try and protect the client in that way. And I suppose that it does exist potentially within the life, the coaching field. Um, and um, I, you know, the truth is it happens in therapy anyway. It happens in every field. Uh, I'm not sure how much regulation prevents it. There are, you know, terrible, unethical people in every profession, whether it's um, regulated or not. So I'm personally just happy to not have a bunch of people who really don't get me or understand my work try and tell me how I can do it. Yeah, and I don't even know how you would regulate it. Like, would it be a state thing? Would it be a federal thing? Like, I don't know. How yeah, that, I don't know. I don't know how that process would work. I, but I think it would just be a complete mess. <laughs> I think it'd be a complete mess. Yeah. Let, let the free market of ideas in this particular sector, let it be a free market of ideas. Cause someone, someone who gets help from you won't get help from someone else. And if you yeah. regulate it, I think you're going to hurt the people who are already being helped and people who don't find it helpful don't need to find it helpful. That's exactly right. And you know what? I mean, like for me, it's pretty straightforward. If somebody is interested in working with me, um, they can just come and try it and yeah. I, and I won't even charge them for it. Right. You can come, uh, you know, it's like a test drive for a car, come have a session with me. Let's dig in. Let's really see if I can be of help. Cause I'm going to try my best in that conversation to be of service to you. And at the end of that time, you have a pretty good idea of who you're dealing with. It's not like I'm putting on some show for you. Yeah. That's it. If you like what I said and you feel like there was a good connection or there was some value to it, then you're more than welcome to do some more with me. And if not, then that's also fine. So, you know, it's easy enough to make that assessment if you want to work with me or not. And you work with C-suite executives specifically, right? That, that's like your, that's like your well, not, target? Oh, no, not only, but those are the kind of people that I, I like to work with. Essentially people, I said a little bit about it earlier, but that, that who are very driven, that I, I like the, the, the mindset of these people, okay? I like people that, that, are, that know that I can put my mind to something and create it in the world. So they could be business owners, executives. Um, you know, I've worked with um, high-level pro athletes, you know, like, um, you know, one of my recent clients just won the Super Bowl. And um, it's the same idea. These people are incredibly driven, um, but they left something behind, you might say. You know, like in this drive for success in the world, they forgot to check in, in within themselves to see what really is it that leads to happiness and peace and freedom. These words I keep using which almost sound like cliches, but the it's it's almost a cliche that we know when people say, well, money can't buy happiness, you know, but the funny part is they'll say that or when I'll tell them about these people that strive for success in the world and then they wake up one morning and they, they're like, I'm, I'm still not happy. You know, what's it going to take? if I've already made millions of dollars, or I've already achieved this, I got the corner office or the, you know, whatever it is, all these trappings of success and I'm still not happy. Well, what's missing? 
And these people sometimes, the, the ones that are saying like, oh, we know money can't buy happiness. It's easy to say those words, but in the back of their mind, they're still saying, yeah, but let me prove that for myself. Let me go get a bunch of money first and then I'll know that it can't buy happiness. Yeah. So they don't really believe that. I think almost everybody has this idea that there's happiness for us out in the external world. And so I like the ones who have already tested that, I guess is the answer to your question and fa- and come up wanting, you know? Happiness is created. Happiness isn't found. I'd say it even simpler than that. I'd say happiness is intrinsic. That's, that's one of the, the unique features when you asked before what's mm-hmm. different about the work that I do. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll have to get into this and it'll take a few minutes to sort of do really it. help people Please. understand this. Please, dive, okay. dive deep. Right. Let's, let's, let's do this now. So one of the fundamental distinctions that I make um, foundational is between what we can call ego versus true self. Now, those are just words and everybody might define them differently. So let me give you a quick kind of tour of how I define those, these words. Um, by ego, I don't mean it in the Freudian sense. So we're not talking about superego and it and all that stuff. I use ego simply to describe the identity that we all create uh, beginning around age two. And... The purpose of that identity, well, we created that identity out of fear and insecurity. So no one creates an ego out of joy and happiness. We created, Mm. well, let me go through the whole story. Mm. So um, prior to the age of two, we do not yet have what's called self-consciousness, meaning the baby doesn't have a sense of separation between themselves and their mom. They don't even have a sense that they're different. There's not like a me and a you at that age. So they they literally experience life as just consciousness, as one open flow. Mm -hmm. And then somewhere around the age of two, we begin to develop self-consciousness. And I joke that it's like somewhere around two, we suddenly go, oh, I must be the will everyone's been talking about for all this time. You know, obviously it's not that sudden and it's obviously not a conscious revelation, but it is kind of like suddenly you become aware of a me and that's a big deal. Now I joke that because of this, all two-year-olds are basically narcissists. And by that, I mean that they just became self-conscious. So like, of course, everything must somehow be about them. Right. Now, that's a little bit of a double-edged sword. It seems to be part of our natural development, our brain development, whatever. But the challenge is that two-year-old now looks through these brand-new brand self-conscious eyes, and we see the world around us, and we see the other people, the adults around us. And I believe, this is my theory, I want to emphasize, I'm not saying this like it's a fact, but we look around the world and we see these adults. Now, remember, we're still looking through eyes that are largely still coming from, you know, tremendous innocence and vulnerability. And I think we look around and we see these adults. We must look really tense and upset to this two-year-old. Okay. We're like kind of tense and banging into each other. And we just don't look like as happy and free as their intrinsic experience of life. Now I have to emphasize all of this is happening unconsciously. So they're not cognitively thinking mom looks really upset right now, but on some level, they definitely get it. Now to this two-year-old narcissist, they look around the world. They see all these upset people. And unconsciously, I believe they're going to come to a conclusion that this must somehow be my fault. Everyone is upset. I must have caused this somehow. There must be something wrong with me. So this is my explanation for why we create this ego, this identity, because now the unconscious mind, which according to some studies is literally a billion times more powerful than the conscious mind. If you think of them like computers, the unconscious mind now says it's not safe 
for us to be different than our tribe. This is old, old wiring, you know, 100,000 years ago, if you got thrown out of your tribe, you were dead. You know, you were saber tooth tiger food or something. So that wiring still exists in us, this mm-hmm. primal survival level wiring. So the unconscious mind says, we got to do something. We have to figure out how are we going to fit in with these other people. And so we create an identity just, uh, just in order to fit in. But it's important to understand because of that very foundation, because of the reason we create this identity, rather than just being this being of love and peace, we create an identity that is fundamentally founded in fear and insecurity. Does that make sense? Why, how that happens now? Yeah, no, that, that definitely makes more sense. The idea of like, you know, I can't remember my first memory, which is ironic because I can't remember it. Uh, my earliest mm-hmm. memory, but the idea of a two-year-old being completely self-driven because they don't know anything else, right? And right. they because they can't know anything else because they you a two-year-old can't take care of itself, right? It's completely right. self-dependent. It's not it's not self-dependent. It's dependent on the parents, mostly the mother. So the fact that right. like everything's about me, it's like, well, yeah, because <laughs> you can't you can't. It's impossible. But I do like the different idea yeah. of the ego. Um, and it still, it still goes back to narcissism, which is phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Well, and so here we are, you know, so we create this identity, uh, and you know, I mean, I'll take it one step further As that, in that moment, I, I say moment and suddenly it's probably more gradual, but, yeah. uh, when we make this assessment that there's something wrong with us unconsciously, um, that something's wrong with me at this level, at this core level, only really this may be, depending on how you look at it, maybe between six and 10 variations on this. So by the time we become adults, you know, our neurosis, our anxiety, whatever, it all seems so unique, like my personal version of it. But at this fundamental level, there aren't that many variations. I'm not worthy. I'm not good enough. I'm not lovable. I'm not safe. I have to be perfect. I'm alone. These are the kind of decisions that we make about ourselves. And so the ego, the identity that we build on top of that is designed essentially to prove to the world that we are not this thing that we've decided about ourselves. Mm -hmm. So the entire identity is designed to try and prove to the world that we are in fact worthy or safe or whatever it is, you see? So that's shaky ground for your entire identity to be built on something like this is shaky ground, at least in my mind. Could it also be got to prove to yourself though? There's some, some, yeah, people, oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, some people just like, you know, fuck the word. I want to prove it to myself. Well, well, let me say, let me say that a little differently. It's not so much prove it to yourself as to, to hide from yourself this fundamental flaw at a deeper level. You believe that you're flawed, that you're, unworthy, whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. And so you can't sustain that. I mean, people might walk around the world saying, I'm unworthy, I'm not good enough. But for the most part, they're not really saying that from the deepest part of it. Right. You know, that's more of a psychological thing, but it's, it, it will be very difficult, like almost unsustainably painful to live at the level of your fundamental ego wound the way I'm describing it, you know, you would be like almost bedridden with shame or guilt or anxiety, whatever it may be. Uh, And I suppose maybe there are people that operate that way, but those people probably need a lot more help than someone like me is supposed is here to give. What about about like imposter syndrome? A lot of successful people have imposter syndrome where it's like, everyone tells you something's amazing. You're just like, yeah, it's, it's all right. It's it's okay. Like I, 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 I don't know if I have something like that. Like, I think the stuff I create is, I guess sometimes I know it's good. Sometimes it's like, well, it could be better, right? I always have the mindset mm-hmm. of it could be better. I could be better at this. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be call at that, that imposter syndrome though. All right. So how, how would, how have you encountered imposter syndrome? First of all, I want to say, and this is a little bit of an unusual viewpoint. I don't think imposter syndrome is, there's a lot of ways you could look at it. I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. Okay. Um, so for example, um, I coach clients on a regular basis who, I mean, if you're just looking at financial success, who are way more successful than I am. And frankly, 
than I will probably ever be. I mean, when I'm coaching, you know, pro athletes who are making 30 million bucks a year, um, I don't really expect that that's ever going to be my path. So there's going to be a part of me that, that would say, wow, these people make a lot more money than me or whatever. And, and a part of me might go, who do I think I even am <laughs> to talk to these people? So that's fine. I just don't get caught up in that. I let those thoughts show up in my brain and I just don't entertain them very much. Um, but it's, it's imposter syndrome. It can be interpreted in many different ways. Um, if you want to kind of parallel it to the things that I was just describing, yeah, in that way, it's probably a problem for someone because if I think of fundamentally that I'm not good enough and now I'm in the world and I'm trying to make a living and I'm, you know, maybe an executive or whatever, and I'm still operating, which we do from the perspective of ego, we're still operating from this. There's something wrong with me. Then you're never going to overcome that through your accomplishments. You see what I mean? Mm -hmm. You know, my son and I had this conversation many years ago. I think it's interesting. Um, why do rock stars kill themselves? Because if you think about this in just in terms of numbers, um, you know, how, what is the incredibly small percentage of individuals that become like legit rock stars, you know, very, it's very low, almost impossibly low. small, yeah. you know? Um, and yet any one of us can probably name three or four off the top of our head that took their own life in some way, either through drugs and alcohol, 27 club. Yeah, right. Exactly. You know, or through, um, you know, actually doing it directly. I don't know the numbers here, but I would think that the percentage of rock stars that kill themselves has got to be almost exponentially higher than the number in the general population. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Comparatively. Sure. Now that doesn't make any sense on the surface because you say, wait a second, these guys got the dream. They got everything that they were supposed to want, you know, and somehow they're taking their own life. Well, of course there could be lots of explanations, you know, they could be, you know, manipulated by their manager. Like, you know, if you watch the Elton John movie or something, or it could be, um, you know, the, the, the loss of privacy. So I understand there are other reasons, but I think that to the, to the point that we're making here, what if, you work your whole life to get to something and you've achieved a level that realistically speaking, you're not going to succeed more than this. You're not going to do more, you know, another gold album isn't going to change anything. And you're still waking up in the morning feeling empty or unfulfilled or not happy, you know, and now maybe you're doing it in a $10 million mansion. Well, at what point, and if no one has had the conversation with them that we're having right now, in other words, helping them to see, to look within themselves for happiness, not out in the world, that at a certain point, you might, you may well come to the conclusion that happiness doesn't exist, that it's a myth, that if I can't be happy with everything I've achieved, then there's just no point in going on. You know, it's a certain kind of despair of realizing that you've gone as far as you can in the world, seeking happiness and not and, and realizing you've come to the end of your search and you still haven't found it. That is a very certain kind of despair. Well, maybe it's stress. I think stress can be one of those reasons when you are a, like a top rock star, right? Like say you're um, like even like today, right? The Rolling Stones, as of recording this, are still touring. They're in their late 70s. Mick Jagg is out there shaking his ass on stage. I saw them last year. Like, and, and apparently they still put on an amazing show. It was an amazing show and you would never believe it. You th I thought they were going to come out in walkers. Yeah. They were amazing. But with even at that age specifically, there has to be a lot, a lot of stress. I mean, you know, I, I, I'm in charge of a podcast startup trying to figure out what the hell we are in the world, creating podcast content. That is incredibly stressful. I can't imagine performing in front of Madison Square Garden. So if, with, with that success probably comes a lot of stress. And my guess, again, it's not on my theory, a lot of that stress can get in the way of happiness, especially when you reach success. Okay. Would, would, so, would you agree? Well, 
You know, yes, but there's a qualifier there. Okay, shoot. Um, you see, one of the things that I love about the approach that says happiness is within, it's intrinsic. And we haven't finished that part of the conversation, but we'll get back to what I mean by true self and all that stuff. Okay. But once we know that, and it's not a knowing like an intellectual knowing, it's an experiential knowing where you literally go to that place and see for yourself. Once you know that, you realize that there is a part of you that is impervious to stress, that is not affected by how many records you sold or how much, it's not even affected by, you know, the fundamentals of day-to-day living, like how much food you have to eat. Uh, There are, there is, everyone has this being of, of peace and clarity that I've keep referring to. So once we begin to learn to operate from that perspective, stress will just seem less well stressful, honestly. Um, and, and that's the, the secret sauce in this approach. It's not stress management. It's not, um, positive thinking. It's not even self-help. It's coming to the realization. I call it self-realization that who you already are before you read one more book or take one more seminar or anything else, who you already are is intrinsically happy and peaceful and clear. I could add 20 more words to that list, but you get the idea. So this is not stress management. You know, it's, it's something fundamentally different in the perspective through which you view the world. I mean, stress can also be healthy for people. Yeah, sure. I mean, stress stress is a motivator. Stress means, I, how I work through stress is working through stress, right? If I'm, if I'm stressed about something, I work until it's done and the stress is gone. And then I stress about something else. You know, very successful people have ways to use stress as a weapon to inflict on the world, <laughs> like for themselves, right? Like, um, I'm sure Tom Brady uses stress as motivation to throw 50 more touchdowns, right? So how, how can stress be healthy for people? Well, I think you just described it. I mean, um, stress is, I mean, the way you're defining it is that it's, um, something where we feel uncomfortable in some way in, in some current situation. And so it motivates us to make a change. Um, and I think that's legit. I don't have any problem with that. Um, uh, you know, how people define stress is very important. Um, how do you define stress? I, yeah, I was, I, I define stress as the experience of an and experience, meaning like my perception of the world or of myself is, to, is in not having sufficient resources to accomplish whatever it is that I need to accomplish. So for example, uh, at the most fundamental level, if I'm hungry and I don't experience that I have the resources to get food for myself or my family, then I will experience that as stressful. If yes. I'm hungry, but all I need to do is go downstairs and get a sandwich out of the refrigerator, then I won't experience that as stressful. I'll be like, oh, I'm hungry. I need to go eat. You know, um, if I'm an executive in a company and I don't experience, I, it, it's, it's different type of resources, right? But let's say my, my company is, um, you know, there's some problem in the company, whatever it might be. And I don't experience that I have what it takes to, to steer my company in the direction that it needs to go. Uh, you know, and I either, I don't feel like I have it in here or I don't feel like I have the team in place the exact, the resources in the company, whatever it may be, then I'm going to experience that as stress. You see, if my company's, the ship is going off course and I go, well, yeah, I, I see that, but I know exactly how to put it back on course. And I have the executive team in place to make it happen. I won't experience that as stress. I'll experience that as just something that I need to get done. Mm. You see? So that's an, and then in order to understand that definition, we have to understand what I mean by resources, right? 
because you could mean a lot of things. I mean, it could mean the basics like enough money or whatever. That's true. But I talk about internal resources. Um, internal resources are essentially different forms of energy that we would utilize in different circumstances. So um, in my model, in my world, I, tell, I call those type of uh, resources life force, emotion, lower mind, upper mind, and soul, which are names of different types of energy that we would use to accomplish. They have different functionalities in the world. And I can get into what all that means if you like. Let's, let's, let's go with the mind. I've never heard sure. upper mind or lower mind. I've heard left sure. brain and right brain. But t- talk to me about upper mind and lower mind. Sure. Um, it's pretty simple. And these are arbitrary definitions. They're actually, I learned these somewhere else from one of my original teachers in chiropractic, a man named Dr. Donald Epstein, who is just a brilliant visionary wizard uh, walking the earth. But um, uh, so I, I think he probably came up with these originally, but um, lower mind is simply the linear part of our mind. It's, you know, one, two, three, four. It's, you know, what are the exact steps that I need to take to create this outcome? Uh, so it's very linear, very fact-based. And one very important aspect of the lower mind is it is the part of our mind that makes a decision. So the lower mind is the part, a part of our mind that says this, not that. This is very important. So I'm going to turn right at this corner, not left. When you make a decision, you are essentially eliminating the other option. You see what I mean? Like if I go right, I've eliminated for the time being the possibility of going left. It's actually interesting. If you look at the root of these words, the root of the word decide is the same as the word homicide or suicide. And so when you decide, you are literally killing off your other choices. That's, I think you just changed the way I'm going to look at that word forever. Yeah, right. Well, decision Decision, is the same as incision. Mm -hmm. You're cutting away the other choice. Yeah. So in a sense, you're, not, really, you're, not really, you're not really making a choice. You're just destroying the other choice. Well, you know, you're going in one <laughs> direction versus the other. Yeah. yeah. You know, and mm. so Interesting. that's really important. Like, for example, as an executive, you have to be able to do that. And you know, there may be two. These both options may be good options and they may, you know, and people may be really unhappy when you make one decision versus another, but you've got to be willing to make those hard decisions, those hard choices sometimes. Mm-hmm. And so that's where the lower mind com- comes in. The lower mind divides things that way. And it says this or this. And sometimes, yes, I understand it can be this and that, or you can find ways to, but I'm talking about at every point in time, you can make one decision this way or that way. And this is what the lower mind does. And that's a very important resource to have available to you. Okay. Now left alone, like with no, without the other resources that I'm describing, it can also be very problematic because you're, you're not using a lot of other information to make your decisions. Uh, so to answer the rest of your question, the upper mind is the big picture. It's the whole is now greater than the sum of its parts. So this is your vision that you might have for your company or for your life. Uh, not just what is this particular decision, but how does this decision fit in with the greater vision that I have for my life or my company or my family, whatever it may be. So, all of these different, what I call energetic resources that we were, that we're describing, they're all designed to work together. It's not that not, none of them are meant to operate, you know, in isolation from the others. I like that. I, like, I really like that analogy. Like it, to me, it, it speaks to me of um, the journey and a destination, right? The bottom mind is to, to the journey to decide which way you're going to go. The top mind's the destination. I think it also works for the way people think. Um, I think of chess, right? People play chess. Mm-hmm. A lot of people play chess one move at a time. That would be bomb thinking, right? Whereas yeah. some people from jump, they know how it's going to checkmate you. They know exactly how they're going to do it. The moves and exactly. Right. And they can adjust on the fly. And I think some people really think towards the end goal. And some people think towards, okay, how am I going to get to that end goal? <laughs> yeah. And both are legitimate. 
you know? Yeah, of course. And ideally, yeah. you know, like what, what if I'm going to work with a client, um, I want them to have all of these resources available to them because, you know, you might be somebody with a huge vision and no ability to execute. In other words, all upper mind, not so much lower mind. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's problematic. Um, you know, if we talk about the other resources, so, um, what I call the soul, uh, or I would, I'm not what, you know, what Dr. Epstein called the soul, that's where I get it from is sort of, um, the best way of describing what I'm meaning by your true self. It's who you are prior to the ego kicking in, you know? And if you want to get, I mean, a little, you know, esoteric about it, I believe that, and this is a belief. I want to be clear, like, this is not a fact, but I believe that we come into this world with certain gifts, certain resources that are intrinsic to us that are like our unique gifts that we have to give to the world, you know? And so the, the soul level intelligence is helping us to be, you know, um, I don't like that phrase, the best version of me, because typically when they say it, they are, people are referring to the ego without realizing it. They're talking to a, about a personality level. Yeah. But to me, the best version of myself is, is the soul level version of myself where I'm, I'm living in alignment with the, my deepest gifts and, and my, my truest um, way of being in this world. Okay. Okay. I like that. Soul think soul level, <laughs> how to achieve soul level. So how, how, that's a good question. How, how can you achieve soul level? Well, how, how now do you, we're getting into, sorry, go ahead. How do you, how do you live life in the soul lane? The soul lane. Well, yeah, it's funny. I use a, a metaphor called the soul line versus the goal line. Um, okay. You like, know, I like these analogies. Well, you know, what we're saying essentially in the soul line versus the goal line is the goals are the external things in the world. They're the, the money or the job or the, all that stuff that people right. strive for. And that is often egoically based. And that's where it becomes problematic is the ego is the part of us that often strives in the world that is trying to find its happiness, its worth in the world and its accomplishments. And so we're often approaching life from a goal line perspective, but without that soul driving us, you know, without some greater vision of who we are, which is upper mental or without some deeper sense of a purpose or a contribution that we're making to the world. And so our accomplishments ultimately end up feeling very empty, mm. you know? Mm -hmm. um, but so more to your, to your question, um, how do we accomplish the, however you asked about the soul before, um, this is what I mean by true self. Okay. The, the process of self-realization to create what I call the self-realized life is to, um, is to begin to live more from the perspective of the true self. Mm -hmm. It's to begin to transcend the ego. This it's begin to begin to see the ego for what it is a created identity like a mask that we've been wearing for so long that we forgot that we were wearing it, you know, as though you were playing, you were in a play and, and you're playing whatever King Lear and, um, and the play is over and, you know, it's time to go home and you're still speaking with that Shakespearean accent and you're still referring to the people as characters in the play. And someone says to you, wait a second, Will, the, the play is over. <laughs> You're just will, yeah. you know, yeah. but, but you forgot you've become so identified with the character that you play that that now becomes who you are. And that's what happens with the ego. We create this identity purely for reasons of survival. It's a, I say over and over fear and insecurity. We create this identity and then we forget that we've created it. And so then we become identified with this false self. And the purpose of self-realization is to see that this is not and never has been who you really are. So who are you? Ah, that's the question, isn't <laughs> that's, it? That's the, that's the grand <laughs> and, old question. And, and in fact, 
There's no getting around it. This is now a spiritual conversation. Mm-hmm. Because when, when someone asks, who are you? Or I ask someone, who are you? I'm not asking for a polished up version of the ego. Right. Okay. Now there's nothing wrong, by the way, like this is, I make fun of sometimes self-help and I do it intending to be funny, but self-help, most of it, like 90 plus percent of it, all these books and everything is really about trying to prop up the ego, making the ego more self-confident and all that Mm -hmm. kind of stuff. Yeah. Okay. Now there's a place for that because you need in life what I call a functional ego. Okay. It's, you need an ego that can function in the world and at whatever level you want it to function. So if you want to be an executive in business, ideally you need a pretty functional ego. Now that can break down in a lot of ways, but let's just say you have a healthy functional ego and you're running a company. That's great. Okay. You need that. But what I'm saying here is that that will never lead to happiness. The nature of the ego can never be happy because it is founded on fear and insecurity. You can have temporary happiness and that's fine. You know, Mm -hmm. you get a promotion, you do whatever, you know, your podcast hits a million listeners, you know, you're probably going to feel some happiness with that. And I say, that's awesome. Okay. But we know how long does that last? That kind of happiness. It depends. Honestly, me, if one podcast, Maybe a few days, if it's really successful. Maybe a few months if it stretches out longer. If you get some, you if you get some good news coverage, it can last a little longer. But I think it's a piece of the whole. Like podcasting, you can be happy forever as long as you keep doing it. So it's a piece of the whole. But so you to have to keep there. refilling it. Then you're saying, as yes. long as you keep yeah, doing it's a, it, the gas tank. Yeah, correct. Right, and then you have a bad one. You see, this is the the danger of of our happiness being tied to some external event. You know, something happens, the, the, you know, your podcast doesn't have a good week or whatever. They cancel it, you know, whatever happens. And all of a sudden now we're not happy because our happiness was tied to some external event. That is the nature of the ego. I'll give you an example of this. Um, That's what you're saying. Yeah, go ahead. Because I've worked with pro athletes. And so like, think of someone like a, whatever, the football player, whatever, like, you know, and this guy scores a touchdown. Okay. And you see him doing their happy touchdown dance in the end zone and all that kind of stuff. Now you see in that moment that that athlete is experiencing true joy. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. I would suggest to you, I would challenge that that athlete doesn't even really understand what that joy they're experiencing is all about. Now you would, the obvious answer, if I say, well, what are they happy about? You say, well, they scored a goal, you know, their team is winning. The crowd is cheering, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I would say, absolutely. I completely understand that. I would feel the same way, you know, by the way, side note, I have sat in the home of one of these you know, $30 million a year athletes who had an enormous, successful, you know, huge game on national TV. You know, they actually scored two touchdowns and all kinds of other stuff. And I talked to him the next day. This is one of the best games of his career. And he was like, yeah, well, you know, like he couldn't feel it in himself because it's the, there was something missing. You see what I mean? Mm-hmm. But in the moment he was celebrating when he scored it. But here's my point. Okay. Before I go too far down the rabbit hole, um, I'm suggesting that the joy that that athlete is experiencing when they're really celebrating is that for a moment they get to stop seeking happiness. Like there's nothing left to seek for a moment. The goal has been reached. And so they can just be happy with nothing to seek. That's a very powerful place to be. But because they tie their happiness to the external, as you've already pointed out, it doesn't last very long. And so they're on to the next thing and the next thing. That's the nature of the ego. So let's talk, because I see somehow, shockingly, that we're running out of time. Yeah. Uh, 
Well, that's what happens, man. This podcast goes fast. So I do. Yeah, it does. It goes really fast. I do want to touch on your freedom course. Okay, Um, but before, let let me define true self, if I could, because I'll tie back to the freedom course and happy to talk about that, you know? Um, Because true self is critical and we really haven't defined it very well yet. So your true self, and it's difficult to define, I might point out, because it's not something as tangible as the ego. Um, your true self is who you already are before you create an ego, before you, mm-hmm. you think your next thought. It's, it's very nature, as I've been pointing out, is already peace and happiness and freedom and love, and I could keep going. The trick to seeing it is that you've become um, addicted, in a way, to the ego, to the external version of yourself, to the mask that we've created. And so the, 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 the beauty of the approach of just going directly to what I call just to see who you are is that it's already present. It's closer than your next breath. Mm-hmm. But the trick is to be able to see through the mask of the ego. So the process, what we call self-inquiry, is one of learning to question these um, fundamental ideas about who and what I am. So you asked the question, who are you earlier? That's um, in some spiritual traditions, literally the most fundamental question that you ask. And you ask that question until you answer everything, you know, I'm um, uh, a male of this age living in New Jersey, you know, I grew up this way, I'm a cancer survivor, I'm a person who believes in this and that, I'm a Democrat or a Republican or, you know, I'm an anti-vaxxer or whatever elements you put into your identity, you know, you begin to ask yourself, who am I? Is this really who I am? And with true, honest self-inquiry, all of those identities, those aspects of your identity begin to fall away. Like if I wasn't this or I wasn't that or on and on, is there something essential about me that wouldn't change? If all of my beliefs weren't like were to disappear, or all of my, if it was suddenly I couldn't remember my history, if I had amnesia, whatever it may be, would there still be something essential about me that doesn't ever change? And we would call that term consciousness or awareness. It is the very space in which all of your experience occurs. So every thought that you think, Every perception you have of the so-called outside world, every physical experience or feeling in your body, all occur within this space that I call awareness. The fact that you are aware of something, we take it back into the experience. What is the very nature of this awareness itself? In other words, to be aware of awareness And that's an inquiry that we probably don't have enough time for today, but that takes us back toward the true self, towards our essential nature. And I could go on and on, but let me see what you have questions or thoughts on that. Being aware of awareness. Yeah. It's a little bit of a mind bender. Yeah. So if you're aware of awareness, I mean, aren't you always aware of awareness? I would have, I think you may be defining it differently than I am. Okay. Uh, it's like you're aware, you might be aware of your thoughts or aware of your feelings, aware uh-huh. of, I see a picture hanging on the wall. But to be aware of the space in which all of those things occur is definitely, it's what well, you might say, it's meta, right? It's, it's, it's a different frame than, than the normal space in which you're thinking from. Right. And that perspective allows you to see the temporary transient nature of everything within experience, anything you experience by its very nature is temporary. You experience your thoughts, you experience your body, but you know, these things are changing constantly. 
but the space of awareness in which they arise and occur does not change. It's consistently the same open space. You know, the space in this room that I'm sitting or that you're sitting right now, we could rearrange the furniture, Mm -hmm. but the space in the room doesn't change. Okay. And another name for this space is being. Human being. So no matter what, like no matter what career path you take, you're still the same? That kind of thing. Like Fundamentally, no matter, you're like the same. No matter yes. what you do in life, if you move from New York to Texas, Texas to California, California to Kalamazoo, I've done it's it. Still, this still the same place. Still the same space. Well, wait, was California and New York are not no, the no, same? It's not place. the same space, but like you know, you you you're just you're rearranging the furniture. I'm talking about the space within. Right okay. now, we can expand it beyond within, but that's going to take us. That we don't have that time. So, fundamentally. And by the way, I can go another few minutes. I don't have to stop it right on the hour. But okay. um, uh, I'm talking about y- your true self as consciousness, as being. That does not change. Right. It does not change where you, depending on where you live or what you do for a living. It, I'll, I'll say something even more radical. Okay. That the very nature of this space is love. Now, what I'm suggesting is that Hitler and Gandhi have the exact same space. They, their very nature is love. And the only difference is one of them was able to self-realize, to realize that more in the world, and the other was deeply, deeply embedded in an egoic view of the world. Can you guess which one was which? Something tells me Gandhi was the good one. that was a softball correct um (laughs) um, but yeah and so what i'm saying is you know every baby hitler was a baby right and and that baby's nature was love Mm -hmm. okay that nature doesn't change he just deeply deeply forgot and someone like Gandhi or Martin Luther King, we could, you know, we probably have lots of people we'd agree on. They somehow found that true nature, that that soul, right. which is another right. word that I used earlier, okay, is what drove them in the world. You know, Martin Luther King didn't think this would be a great business idea, civil rights, you know, mm-hmm. it wasn't his ego that drove him. It was something so deep in, in seeing the humanity that, you know, that allowed him to see a path to civil rights, a nonviolent path to civil rights, you know? Um, and and that's who we really are. And what I do with, with executives and business owners and all the high performers and overachievers is help them to see, to, 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 to find that part of themselves so that they can still strive in the world and create cool shit and build big businesses and be productive without losing the peace in their heart Mm. because most people think it's one or the other. I can create this enormous life or I, I can go meditate in a cave, Mm -hmm. you know, and I'm saying the two are not in any way in contradiction. I mean, it's in contradiction if you're being unethical, you know, if I'm chopping down the rainforests, then it's going to be difficult to truly find peace in my heart, Mm -hmm. you know, but if I'm living a life that is aligned with my basic principles of ethics and morality, et cetera, you know, I'm being a good person and, you know, and I know who I am, I'm living the self-realized life as I describe it. There's no reason why you can't have peace and love and freedom and happiness and be working your ass off in the world. Right. You know, I mean, they're every, not exclusive at all. Every, everyone strives for freedom. And the idea of freedom, this is a thought I've been going back and forth with recently, so I think it'd be appropriate to ask you. With the idea of freedom, are you more free as an adult or as a child? Now we're talking about external or extrinsic freedom. Okay. Okay. Uh, the, my, the answer in the context of what I've been talking about right. is it makes no difference. No difference. <laughs> and you might even say the child is more like still attuned to that inner freedom. Right. Let's, let's start with inner freedom, not ex- okay. inner, inner freedom. Well, then I would say in most cases, practically speaking, the child is more free. You know, mm. like if you if you go into 
um, a kindergarten class and you say, you ask, hey kids, how many of you is an artist? Every kid is going to raise their hand. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Right. And then if you ask that same question in first grade, second grade, third grade, all the way up to high school, let alone if you went into like a business or workplace, you'd find fewer and fewer people raising their hand. Mm -hmm. You know, now what happened? Did they suddenly it's, and obviously you could make the joke as I've heard it made. Well, you ever see what a six year old draws? They think they're an artist, you know, but it's the That's freedom. external. That's external. Not exactly. External. Exactly. In, internally. Freedom yeah. Internally. To, to believe yeah. that I can create anything. Yeah. You know, and that's not all that freedom means, but it's just an example. So yeah, we do. But the, as the ego develops and becomes more complex and more, you know, and obscures more and more of the truth of who you really are. I do believe that our experience of life is that we are less free. We are not actually less free because freedom is intrinsic. It never goes away, mm -hmm. but the experience of life will probably be, I am less free. Interesting. All right. It's a lot, a lot to take in. I'm going to go back, listen to this and dig deeper, dig in even more. Um, but we are running out of time. Yeah. Um, I'll cut the chiropractory. Uh, we'll come back to it. I'll bring you back. We'll have to, yeah. I'll, I'll bring you back. Cause there's a lot more we need to dig into, but the final question yes, always sir. goes to the guest. If there's anything you want to ask me, you can always plead the fifth. Cause I kind of like to throw a curveball at the end of the podcast. So anything I want to ask you, Yeah, anything you've ever wanted, anything you want to ask me about in preparation for this podcast, you know, last question, I like to throw it to the guest. They can ask me something. Oh my God. I mean, <laughs> I don't know if I have one question for you, Will, but I, I have a lot of respect for, for what it takes to, to put this on, you Thank know? You. Uh, so, I mean, um, you know, I mean, I would rather sit down with you over lunch or <laughs> even over zoom and, and like talk to you about that for an hour or two or three, because I, I, I really think that it's amazing to, to, you know, do the work that it takes to create, you know, even a re a relative level of success yeah. in, in, in something like this and to have, you know, people that come back and want to listen and, and, you know, what all the parts of that puzzle that it takes to put it together. Uh, so, um, you know, thank you no <laughs> for doing this. It's, and, it's a lot. A podcast is a lot of work, but Fred, I think you would benefit greatly from a podcast. You yeah. Have no problem talking um, for a long time. You have no it's problem talking, talking and right. ex expressing yourself and conveying your thoughts in a clear and concise way. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And creating the space like you did for me, which I really appreciate to, to express my views and thoughts and ideas. Um, uh, I think it's okay if I, if I make, you know, a little offer to people, let them. Yes, please. Uh, and, and the reason I do this is because, you know, I mean, we, we, we talked about some pretty, you know, um, woo woo. That's <laughs> not really woo, woo, but you know, ideas that are maybe hard to really fully understand just at first listening to this podcast. And so if you're someone out there who, um, is listening to this and really are experiencing, that something I'm saying resonates with you. Like I am, I'm, I'm working really hard to achieve success and yet I don't feel peaceful. I don't feel happy. Uh, and maybe I'm beginning to realize that the next, the, the next achievement isn't going to change that. There's always a next achievement, you know? Uh, and you'd like to maybe explore this approach a little bit longer. Um, I am my standard approach, which I think I said to you in the beginning is I will sit down with someone and, you know, whether it's virtually or if you're in Austin, Texas, come on by, uh, and, and, and really explore this with them specifically as it applies to their life. In other words, how does the, the this perspective of true self or true nature apply to my situation in my business or in my marriage? or just in my own search for happiness, let's sit down and talk about that. And I don't ever charge for that first conversation because um, I want you to get a sense of this for yourself before we ever talk about any longer term commitment than that. So um, I assume we'll have some contact information somewhere. 
in the show notes or something. Yeah, it'll it'll be well, in the show notes. I'm, anything you want to plug, your website, social media, LinkedIn, anything you want to plug. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. My website is currently under reconstruction because it was one of those weird situations where it just basically disappeared off the internet and we couldn't re- rebuild it. Um, but the, the web address is um, energyrichliving.net. And um, there's actually, uh, this, there's not a link to this, but the, if you go to energyrichliving.net forward slash test drive, that's where you can actually uh, get on my calendar to um, set up one of those initial conversations. So, um, uh, you know, please feel free to do that if it's someone, if you feel like this would be a, a valuable conversation for you to have. Um, and yeah, that's it. I'm happy to share with people. All right. Well, Fred, thank you very much for being a guest on the Talking with Tarashek podcast. I greatly appreciate it. I thought this was a very fun and informative conversation. I'm going to have a lot of fun going back and editing so many clips here. And I can't wait to bring you back. My rule is once a quarter. So what's it? August? Uh, that's what? Three months? November. So around November the, it is. Around Thanksgiving time, we can run it back and do it all again. Thank you very much, Fred. All right. Well, it's a pleasure, man. Thank you for doing this. Take all care. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Will Tarish. This has been a Talk with Tarashek podcast. All my shenanigans and biggest podcast solutions.com. Subscribe to the podcast, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, Apple, Amazon, anywhere and everywhere podcasts can be found. The videos on YouTube, shorts on YouTube, Instagram, TikTok, all the fun places. You all know that by now. I'm Will Tarashek, T.S. and Thomas, A-R-A-S-H-U-K. I'll be back next week, actually two weeks. Dr. Phil Riccobono is coming back to the podcast. going to talk about baseball. Uh, my very first guest on this podcast on baseball, the first half of the season, trade deadline, all-star game. So many fun things coming up. Can't wait to talk to Phil again, a good old friend who I met on the great world of podcasting. Until then, I'll take care. All right, we're clear. All right. Awesome. That was Thank fun. you for listening to the